Hello and welcome to the new season of the History of the Germans, Colonist Knights and Cogs, the North in the Middle Ages. Now I have to start with an admission. I promised you a history of the Germans, but I'm afraid there is no such thing. All I can give you is the histories of the German people. The last 94 episodes you've heard one of the histories of the Germans. The one about the mighty emperors and their political, military and spiritual struggle with the papacy. It's a great story and it was fun to tell it. But today we kick off another of the histories, the history of the north of Germany. The part that looked east rather than south. It is a story of a frontier culture where an estimated 7% of the population of the western part of the empire pack up their belongings and move east. Sometimes under the cover of expansionary princes or knightly orders, sometimes invited by local potentates looking to grow their economies. It is a story about the creation and expansion of trade networks, the foundation of cities, some that will remain modest in size, others that turn into important European capitals. It is a story of a periphery that, in time, will become the center. And, because it's an almost independent history, we start at the beginning, in the year 772, the year when Charlemagne takes his troops into Saxony, hell-bent on turning these pagan tribesmen into good Christians and subjects of his emerging empire. If things work out as I hope, we should end this episode with the life of Hermann Billung and Margraf Gero, the first of a wave of chances and warlords that seek their fortune in the East. Now, to all of you who are new to the History of the Germans podcast, do not panic. You do not have to catch up on all the previous episodes, you can just start right here, and the narrative should make sense in itself. At least, I hope it will. However, some say that the previous three seasons weren't completely shoddy, so it may be worth listening to anyway. Okay. Now we're almost through the preliminaries. One last thing before we start. The History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. You can find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Jakob V, Douglas H and Stanley U who've already signed up. So, let's finally get going with episode 95, Callous Kings and Murderous Margraves. The story begins with the Saxons, and when you talk about the Saxons, there is no one more Saxon than the chronicler Widukind of Corvey who lived in the 10th century. He explains where the Saxons came from. Quote, there is a great deal of disagreement about this matter. Some think the Saxons had their origins amongst the Danes and Northmen. Others believe, as I heard someone saying when I was a youth, the Saxons descended from the Greeks. They say the Saxons were the survivors of the Macedonian army that followed Alexander the Great and was dispersed all over following his premature death. There is no doubt that this is an old and noble people. This is proven by the fact that they are mentioned in a speech by Agrippa to the Jews in Josephus and are commented on by the poet Lucan. Unquote. Well, it's either that or there were just a Germanic tribe that lived more or less peacefully in the lands between the Rhine and the Elbe rivers and the North Sea and the Harz Mountains. 
a territory that comprises today's states of Lower Saxony, Nordrhein-Westphalia east of the Rhine, small parts of Hesse and Thuringia. Now, Widukind is making the Saxons out to be very bloodthirsty. Their name, he claims, derives from the word for knife, sas, because they had killed such a multitude of enemies with these knives. In reality, they seem to have been a bit sluggish. When all their neighbours went out to rampage around the ancient Roman Empire in the 5th century, the Saxons stayed home, apart from that small contingent that sailed off to a foggy island in the North Sea, no idea what they hoped to find there. The Saxons are another example that proves that the Germans of today cannot be the descendants of those ferocious warriors that burned Rome and destroyed Western civilization. It is simple. The raiding and pillaging kind had all left Germany for the West and South and stayed there. So they're the ancestors of fashionable Milanese and food-obsessed Catalans, not of the sausage-eating Berliners. As a consequence of their remote and peaceful lives, by the year 772, these Saxons still lived very much like the Germanic tribes of the time of Tacitus. There were no cities and even the villages were very spread out. The Saxons had no king or duke. They would only gather around a leader in war. And that leader was chosen by the free men of the tribe, or, if you follow Widukind, by Lot. Once the war was over, the leader stepped down and returned to tilling his fields. There was an aristocracy amongst them whose votes counted more than that of an average free man, and there were slaves, quite a lot of them, often prisoners of war. So that was no egalitarian paradise at all. And the Saxons were pagans who believed in a derivative of the Nordic polytheistic religion, headed up by Wotan, or for the friends of Marvel, Odin, and his son Thor, Hela, Loki and the like. They also worshipped natural features, like trees, springs and the like. In the 5th and 6th century, the neighbours of the Saxons lived in quite a similar fashion, but by the 8th century that had changed. Christianity had expanded from the territory that had previously been part of the Roman Empire into the east. Saint Boniface, an Anglo-Saxon Benedictine monk, had shaped the organisation of the Latin Church in the Merovingian Empire, that by then included not just France, but also Bavaria, Swabia and Franconia. Boniface founded bishoprics and monasteries across the German land so that, at least nominally, all of the Saxon neighbours to the west and south had become Christians. As the Merovingian and Carolingian Empire expanded, conflict with the Saxons became inevitable. After some failed attempts by his grandfather and father, it fell to Charlemagne to subdue and integrate them into his Christian realm. So, the mighty king of the Franks crossed the Rhine on some trumped-up pretext in 772, and within just 12 months, the Saxon war leaders capitulated. That was quick and painless, or at least it seemed to be. For Charlemagne, this campaign in Saxony was not only about acquiring new territory and defeating an unruly neighbour. He saw his role as the champion of Christendom, who had a mission to convert the pagans. That meant his occupation was accompanied by a campaign of conversion. This he kicked off by destroying pagan temples and other places of worship. He famously felled the sacred Irminsul, a wooden pillar or tree that the Saxons believe held up the sky and was one of their most important religious sites. But somehow this systematic destruction of symbols of pagan religion and the forced baptisms failed to endear the locals to their new Frankish overlords. 
Therefore, the next logical step was to bring on more destruction of symbols of pagan religion and more enforced baptisms. And when that did not work, well, yes, you guessed it, more wanton destruction of symbols of pagan religion and more baptisms at the point of a spear. Though their leaders had caved and converted, the population rose up against this treatment. Every time Charlemagne's troops had to leave to fight another of his incessant wars, the Saxons took up arms. These uprisings were led by one of the few Saxon nobles who had not bent the knee. His name was Widukind, literally the child of the forest. He had refused to give homage to Charlemagne after the campaign of 772 and had organized resistance from across the border in Denmark. In the ensuing decade, Widukind led almost annual rebellions against the Franks that always ended as soon as Charlemagne showed up with his army. Only once, in 782, did he win a pitched battle. However, this battle was far from decisive and Charlemagne retaliated by holding what was later known as the Blood Court of Verden, where he allegedly had 4,500 Saxon rebels executed. And again, the stubborn Saxons did not understand that their new god was omnibenevolent. What followed was another two years of now continuous warfare that only ended when Charlemagne managed to capture Widukind in 785. Widukind agreed to get baptized in exchange for his life and disappeared into a monastery. In the subsequent 20 years, there were further Saxon uprisings until by 804, all Saxon tribes had been defeated and baptized. Now, to properly embed Christianity, an ecclesiastical infrastructure was created. New bishoprics in Paderborn, Bremen, Fierden, Münster, Osnabrück, Hildesheim and Halberstadt were founded. The Great Abbey of Corvey was established in 815 and in 831-33 Hamburg was made an archbishopric, with responsibility for northern Saxony as well as for Scandinavia and all the Slavic lands on the Baltic Sea. Small cities began to emerge around these new ecclesiastical centres. And the second plank of the integration scheme was to co-opt the Saxon aristocratic elite into the Carolingian social and political system, i.e. they were made counts with responsibility for newly created districts. Amongst them were three families that rose to the role of count during this time and played important roles going forward. There were the Immedinger, who were the most august of Saxon houses because they could trace their lineage back to the converted rebel Widukind who seemed to have parlayed his capitulation into major territorial gains. They were based mainly in Westphalia, with possessions stretching east across Salzgitter and Brunswick. The other great family were the Billungs, whose centre was northeast around what is now Lüneburg. And finally, there is one family that will outshine the other two. The Ludolfinger, so called after their earliest known ancestor, Count Ludolf. They had established their headquarters in the Harz Mountains. Through intelligent marriage politics and general competence, Ludolf and his descendants gradually rose to a dominant role across Saxony. By 900, their possessions had expanded beyond the Harz Mountains and stretched down towards the border to the pagan lands at Quedlinburg and Merseburg. Whilst the noble houses of Saxony rose in power and wealth, the Carolingian Empire declined and fragmented. Thanks to the tradition of dividing the lands of a ruling monarch amongst his sons upon his death, in 848 the Great Empire split into three sub-kingdoms, West Francia, Lothringia and East Francia. 
and even the kings of those new entities saw their power slip away into the hands of the local aristocrats. The declining central authority left chaos behind. Internally, the different aristocratic clans got caught up in brutal and never-ending feuds. Meanwhile, foes were gathering on the borders. There are the Vikings who raid the coastline from Hamburg to Brittany, and even up the River Rhine. Then we have the Magyars who have settled in the Hungarian plain and raid into Bavaria and Italy. For the Saxons, the biggest challenge were what they called the Vents. These are Slavic peoples who have moved into the territories to the east of the Elbe during the 6th and 7th century. They were part of a much larger Slavic migration into Eastern Europe that created areas of settlement in Poland, Czechia, Slovakia, across the Balkans, and then most significantly in the Kievan Rus. Where the Slavs originally came from is still subject to archaeological research. They first appear in Byzantine sources in the mid-6th century as they attack Roman cities in Macedonia and Thrace. In Western sources, their first mention is in the chronics of Fredegar from 660, who talk about the Venedi, the blonde ones who were attacking Merovingian strongholds in Thuringia. They then disappear from the chronicles for another 200 years before reappearing, amongst other things, as a threat to the Saxon border in the late 9th century. These internal and external pressures forced the local aristocracies into a new coordination mechanism, the duchies. These appear sometime in the 10th century as a mid-layer between the ineffectual kings and the warring local clans. Their job is quite similar to that of a king. They needed to provide peace and justice internally to end the feuds, and they had to defend the borders. In Saxony, it's the family of the Ludolfingers that rises to the occasion. Otto the Venerable, from 830 to 912, is often counted as the first Duke of the Saxons. He rose into the leadership role after his older brother Brun had died in a battle against the Danish Vikings. His family was well connected not only in Saxony but also into the imperial court of Arnulf of Kärnten, which may be a reason for their ascendancy. Saxony and its ducal house were catapulted from relative backwater into the centre of European politics when the Ludolfingers first rose to King of East Francia under Henry the Fowler and then to the imperial title under Otto the Great. Their story and their great deeds have already been covered in the episodes 1 to 8 of the podcast, so we'll not go through all of this again, only the bits that matter to our narrative. The period of Ottonian rule from 919 to 1025 is sort of the golden age of the medieval stem duchy of Saxony. The kings slash emperors, in particular Henry I and Otto I, spent most of their time in the duchy, they created new cities and dioceses, built up their military capabilities and secured and redrew the borders. Henry I, the fowler, is the first and my favourite Ottonian ruler. He stabilised the collapsing kingdom of East Francia through an astute combination of military and diplomatic efforts. His focus then shifted to protecting the kingdom against foreign raiders. He promulgated a set of new laws commonly known as the Burgenordnung that professionalised the Carolingian military. The concept was to build modern bailey castles along the borders and garrison them with trained soldiers. These are castles meant to protect the local population in times of war, not to suppress them. The rule was that one in every nine peasants was to constantly train in war and live in the castle whilst being supported by the other eight. And 
one third of every harvest was to be stored inside the castle so that when the raiders burned down the fields, there would be enough seed for the next harvest. Moreover, these castles were turned into major economic centers so as to ensure their maintenance and upkeep in peacetime. Markets and courts are to be held in the castles. Assemblies of the local nobility on feast days are also to be held at the castles. It would usually entail the construction of a church, so settlements would then grow up around the church and the castle. The other innovation was to massively expand armoured cavalry. These are the forerunners of the Knights of Chivalric Tales. Like knights, they needed to live a life of constant training and regular application of their skills, which meant they needed funding. For that, they are granted land or other sources of income like markets or tolls, initially only for life. That would later convert into the system of fiefs, where the vassals offer military service in exchange for the use of certain assets. Now, before it had become such a contentious term, I would have called the system feudalism. And if you promise me not to tell anyone, I will continue to do so. Now, whether it was feudalism or not, what did happen during the reign of Henry the Fowler was a material upgrade in the military capabilities of the Kingdom of East Francia. Defensive structures appeared that could be and had been defended successfully, and the new cavalry becomes an effective tool against, in particular, the Magyars, who had been practically invincible until then. Henry the Fowler gets to see some of the fruits of his labours when he begins an aggressive strategy against the Vens in 928. He first defeats the Slavic tribe of the Hevelas in 928, and he occupies their castle in Brandenburg after a long winter siege, and forces them to pay tribute. The same happens to the Daleminsians, a group that lived around where we now find Leipzig and Dresden. As he is already on a roll, he then moves on to Prague, where he forces the ruler of the Bohemians, the man we know as Good King Wenceslaus, into submission. In 929 he has forced most of the Slavic tribes living between the Elbe and the Oder to pay tribute. Now, Seemingly that tribute was so harsh that one tribe, the Ridarii, immediately rebelled. They mustered a large army and attacked the Saxon castle at Walsleben, which they took over. Henry charges one of his vassals to sort out these Ridarii. Now, this is the first battle where the new armoured cavalry gets to be crucial. The Slavic army consists mainly of infantry fighting in a close formation. The Saxons tried several times to break this formation but failed. Only once they sent the cavalry to attack the flank of the Ridari does the enemy break and flee. These wars are fought with the utmost brutality. Since the Slavs were pagans, the Saxons had no qualms killing them and taking away their women and children as slaves. Equally, the Slavs took no prisoners on the few occasions they got the upper hand. So no wonder, the warriors on both sides were frightened. Widukind mentions that some of the soldiers had been riven with fear before the battle, and he even calls them cowards. Though he reserves the worst bit of cowardice to the Slavic defenders of Walsleben, who surrendered and asked for their lives. That they were granted, but their wives and children were taken away as slaves. Now that his army had passed the tests, he confronted the Hungarians and defeated them in 933 at a battle in Riade, stalling Hungarian expansion for a time. And he finally led an army against the Danes in 935, securing the northern border as well. That being said, 
the crowning glory of these defensive wars against the foreign invaders, fell to Henry's son, Otto I, usually called the Great. Otto I defeated the Hungarians in the battle on the Lechfeld in 955, and as a consequence of this battle the Hungarians ceased to attack their neighbours, and 45 years later converted to Christianity under their great king, Stephen I, also known as Saint Stephen of Hungary. Again, Otto I's deeds are many and a fantastic tale, but what interests us here is his activities in Saxony, specifically how he organised the border with the Slavic tribes and his efforts to build out the ecclesiastical infrastructure. Let's start first with the border management. Otto I had ascended the throne in 936 and one of his first acts was to appoint military commanders along the frontier. The northernmost section along the Elbe River, so from Hamburg to roughly Dannenberg, was granted to Hermann Billung, whilst the whole of the border south of there was granted to only one man, Markgraf Gero, who had no surname. Hermann Billung came from the Billung family, who held a big chunk of northeastern Saxony based in Lüneburg. As such, the Billungs were optimally placed to defend the eastern border with the Slavs, as well as the northern border with the Danes. Widukind describes Hermann Billung as a noble, diligent and quite prudent man, and on his first outing he proves to be an able commander who led from the front and inflicted a grave defeat on the enemies. But Hermann Billung had a major problem, which was that he was the younger of two brothers. His older brother, Wichmann, was also a powerful and brave man, generous, skilled in war, and as Widukind said, possessed of such learning that he was said by his people to have superhuman knowledge. This choice of Hermann over his equally competent but more senior brother led to all sorts of rumblings in Saxony, which became worse when Hermann scored his first set of successes. The rivalry between Hermann and Wichmann, and later on with Wichmann's son, who was also called Wichmann, preoccupied Hermann Billung. So as the two sides of the family grew to hate each other more and more, the Wichmanns would at times go across the border and fight with the Slavs against Hermann's forces. As a consequence, Hermann could not establish as tight a level of control over the Slavic tribes in his border zone, namely the Abodrites and Ridari. They did pay tribute all right, but would occasionally rise up and had to be forced back into submission on regular intervals. And as we will find out, this relatively loose control will result in quite a different development here compared to further south. Despite his relatively moderate level of success, Otto I rated Hermann Billung highly and would make him his proxy during periods he was absent from Saxony. Widukind often calls Hermann Billung Dux or Duke, though most scholars agree that he wasn't Duke in the way that, say, the Dukes of Bavaria, Swabia and Franconia were Dukes. Only under Otto II will the Billungs rise to become actual Dukes of Saxony. Hermann Billung's counterpart in the south was Markgraf Gero, a man from a much more modest background than himself. His father seems to have been the leader of Henry the Fowler's household cavalry, and his brother was employed on special missions by Otto I, suggesting they were sort of closely linked to the royal court, but not quite as powerful in their own right. Gero was again a perfect warrior in Widukind's telling. He was skilled in war and offered good counsel in peacetime. He was quite eloquent and learned. He preferred to demonstrate his prudence through deeds rather than through words, and 
he showed great energy in gaining wealth and generosity in giving it away. Gero was made a Margraf. Now, in the Carolingian realm, a Margraf, or in English a Margraf, was a count who administered a county on the border. Such a county was called a Mark or March in English. Being a Margraf instead of a mere count had a number of advantages. A Margraf had military command over the forces at the border. Moreover, he could dispose of the resources of the March at will, instead of having to send them on to the king. And most importantly, he would report directly to the king or emperor instead of the duke. So Gero, for example, never reported to Hermann Billon. Despite of all his skills, Gero's appointment too had been controversial. He was given Merseburg as his headquarters, and Merseburg had come into the Ottonian family through Henry the Fowler's first wife. That marriage was later annulled, and Henry the Fowler's son from this marriage, Tankmar, had expected to at least get Merseburg, his mother's inheritance. When Otto passed it to Gero, Tankmar lost it completely, kicking off a series of civil wars that were Otto I's preoccupation during the first decades of his reign. Again, listen to the episodes 2 to 6, it's a riveting tale. But despite the fact that his boss was constantly fighting brothers and sons for the throne, Gero managed to push the boundary of the kingdom east. His methods were far from subtle. At one point he invited 30 Slavic leaders to a lavish feast, only to have them all murdered at the end of it when they were drunk. On another occasion, Gero and Otto had defeated an army of Obodritus and had beheaded their king. And the next morning, quote, The head of this minor king was placed in a field. Around it, 700 prisoners were beheaded. The eyes of his adviser were torn out as was his tongue, and he was then left helpless in the midst of the corpses. End quote. We have no records from Slavic hands that could tell us what they felt about these constant incursions, so we have to rely on Vidokind, who describes the Slavic attitude as follows, quote, They were a tough people, and able to endure hardships. Accustomed to the poor way of life, the Slavs desire those things that seem a burden to us. There was a truly long struggle between the two sides, with one fighting for glory and a great and broad empire, and the other fighting for liberty or against the worst kind of slavery. End quote. Now, just a quick word on the slave trade of the time. The trade in slaves was an enormously profitable business in the 9th and 10th century. Many were employed in the large aristocratic estates across Europe, but the most valuable of those were the castrated young men who served in the harems of Spain, North Africa and the Levant, as well as the court of Constantinople. The surgeons skilled in the most valuable root and stem castration were based in Verdun and Lyon. As the church had banned the enslaving of Christians, the main source of slaves were either Viking and Russian merchants who sold East Slavic people to Arab and Jewish traders who took them via the Baltic and Denmark down to Verdun and Lyon. The other were the raids of Hermann Billon and Gero, who became incredibly rich in the process. Gero operated as Margraf for 28 years, a period during which he managed to not only regularly defeat the Slavic groups, but also to establish permanent forward bases. In particular in Lusatia, the Lausitz in German, whose inhabitants he had, quote, compelled to accept the heaviest burden of servitude. 
His latter years were overshadowed by a falling out with Otto I, who believed him to have tacitly supported one of the rebellions. He also lost both of his sons, leaving him without an heir. In his grief, he took himself off on pilgrimage to Rome and upon his return founded the Abbey of Gernrode. The Abbey Church, where he is also buried, is one of the few remaining and a very impressive example of early Ottonian architecture. Gero made his widowed daughter-in-law the Abbess of Gernrode, which must have come as a great relief to Otto I. Because the territory that Gero had conquered was truly vast, equivalent to the modern states of Brandenburg, Saxony and Sachsen-Anhalt, or roughly two-thirds of what would later become the GDR. That is almost the size of one of the stem duchies of the time. Not just that, but also the fact that Gero had conquered it almost single-handedly would have given any of his descendants a hard-to-deny claim to succession to the whole of it. But luckily for Otto, Gero did not have any surviving children, and so the enormous march of Gero was divided into separate units. The Northern March, which is roughly equivalent to modern-day Brandenburg, went to a Count Dietrich of Haldensleben, who may have been the son of the rebellious Wichmann. He will appear again in one of the next episodes, and let's say, not in a most flattering light. Then, south of the rather large Northern March, followed the Mark Lausitz, or the March of Lusatia, which is roughly equivalent to Lower Lusatia region along the Saale River, around Cottbus, so that's southern Brandenburg and northern Saxony. This land was given to a certain Hodo, who seems to have done a reasonable job, but wasn't heard of any further. South of these were then three marches, Merseburg, Zeitz and Meissen. The former two, Zeitz and Merseburg, were relatively quickly subsumed into the Margraviate of Meissen. Now this, the Margraviate of Meissen is going to be important. It is roughly equivalent to the modern state of Saxony, with parts of Saxon-Anhalt thrown in. The first two Markgrafs are not particularly relevant, Tietmar and Rigdag, but the third, Eckhard I, will feature quite a bit in the next few episodes. So, bottom line is that by around 982, we have four territories east of the Elbe River. The March of the Billungs, which is equivalent roughly to what is now Mecklenburg-Vorpommern. The Northern March, roughly Brandenburg. Then the March of Lusatia, which is southern Brandenburg and northern Saxony. And the Mark of Meissen, roughly Saxony and a bit of Saxon-Anhalt. All these lands are predominantly inhabited by Slavs, who have taken baptism, presumably to escape slavery in the Snip, but many have not. In the March of the Billungs, control is pretty loose, but in the other three we find fortifications garrisoned by Saxon soldiers who keep a beady eye on the locals. Military fortresses and slaving raids are one thing. But after all, Otto the Great is not just there for a quick buck and some land. He is the emperor, the shield of Christendom, and his job is to bring the word of the Lord to the pagans. And that meant creating a bunch of bishoprics. The first set were established in the Northern March, specifically in Brandenburg and in Havelberg in 948. The next move traces back to 955, when Otto achieves his greatest triumph at the Battle of the Lechfeld. On the eve of the battle, he is supposed to have sworn the following oath, quote, If on that day, through the intercession of such a great advocate, that would be St. Lawrence in this case, Christ would deign to grant him victory and life, he would establish a bishopric in the city of Mirseburg in honor of the victor over the fire and turn his newly built palace there 
into a church. End quote. Now, that is quoted from the chronicler Tietmar of Merseburg, who, well, was Bishop of Merseburg, which makes him a touch biased. So what is more likely that Otto had decided on a much larger scheme to build a new ecclesiastical infrastructure to the east and north than just founding Merseburg. What he wanted was a new archbishopric with responsibility for the whole of the east. Now just in case you're about to doze off on the grounds that you think these ecclesiastical matters are very nerdy and overly specialist, trust me, that would be a mistake. They matter a lot. The church and the way it's organized matters a lot because secular state infrastructure of any kind simply did not exist. There are no police stations, no local courts, let alone social services on the ground. The only kind of administration, in inverted commas, that reaches down into every town and larger village was the church. We are in the period before the investiture controversy, so we are at a point where the kings and emperors had a huge influence on the appointment of bishops and archbishops. So Otto the Great and his successors used the church as their feet on the ground. That meant ensuring effective church administration was a crucial part of early medieval statecraft. It also meant that if the king establishes a new bishopric in lands so far untouched by Christianity, his control over these territories deepens and he really integrates those into his empire. And there are some serious long-term effects. We're in a period when the political map is still in flux. The emergence of France, Germany, Hungary, Poland and Czechia are by no means a given. If things had gone differently in the 200-year window between 850 and 1050, Europe may have had a very different shape. One of the key drivers of which lands go where is the ecclesiastical infrastructure. Hence, the reorganization of the episcopal responsibilities in 968 has to be seen in this context. Before the creation of the Archbishopric of Magdeburg, the Archbishop of Mainz had nominal responsibilities for all the lands to the east. Theoretically, probably all the way to the Ural Mountains. But Mainz was a long way from the Elbe River. And more importantly, Mainz was already a dominant player in the imperial church, responsible for managing the election and the royal coronations. And letting Mainz having responsibility for all the newly acquired territories east of the Elbe would have made it even more powerful, a state within the state. Hence Otto wanted an archbishop closer to the frontier for both practical and political reasons. It took him 13 years of hard horse trading, first with the Archbishop of Mainz and then with his colleague in Halberstadt, but in the end he was granted the right to erect this new archbishopric in Magdeburg and three smaller bishoprics in Merseburg, Meissen and Seitz. In the grand plan, Magdeburg would be responsible for missionary activity into Poland and beyond. Meanwhile, the already existing Archdiocese of Hamburg-Bremen was again confirmed in its responsibility for the whole of Scandinavia. They recently created three bishoprics in Denmark, Schleswig, Riepe and Aarhus, were put under his control as was the bishopric of Oldenburg in the March of the Billungs. Hence, when Otto the Great died in 973, his northern possessions looked well-ordered. The old duchy of Saxony is stable under the leadership of his old friend Hermann Billung and his descendants. The borderlands to the east are run by competent margraves, none of which is too powerful to challenge either king or duke. And the infrastructure is in place to spread Christianity and imperial power further east and further north. But as we know, the best laid plan of mice and men often go awry. The first cracks had already appeared. 
the Saxon nobles began to take against their duke and emperor, spending most of his time in Italy. And there are the neighbours to consider, the Bohemians, the Poles and the Danes. Because these will play a major role in our narrative going forward, next week we'll take a more detailed look at who they are and where they come from. I hope you'll come along for this story next week. Now before I go, let me thank all of you who are supporting the show, in particular the patrons who have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. It is thanks to you this show does not have to do advertising for products you do not want to hear about. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the History of the Germans, it's more likely to be seen by others, hence bring in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter at Germans History and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes. <laughs>